Hey, Storm Freaks, it's Phil. And on this episode, we're at the 2023 National Storm Chaser Summit, and we've got an opportunity to talk to a number of the speakers that are here. So this is all on episode 176 of the Stormfront Freaks podcast. Going green. Greenage. Saddle up. You got it, boss. Hey, welcome uh, to the most entertaining weather podcast. This is the award-winning Stormfront Freaks podcast, and it's brought to you by the Drive Weather app, Drive Weather's interactive time slider. What it does is it updates the weather forecast along your route based on your departure time, and it does it in real time. So you're going to have a safer trip by finding the best time to leave and avoid the bad weather. You can add it to your phone at driveweatherapp.com or just check it out on your app store. Uh, thanks to all of our Patreon teammates that help support the show. Um, we got Dan Wallace uh, actually joining us uh, at the National Storm Chaser Summit of 2023. Uh, one of our VIPs was actually here, so it was great to see Dan. Uh, you can join our Patreon team with multiple level of perks and exclusive merch. You can find the Patreon link at stormfrontfreaks.com. And thanks for all of you uh, joining the team. So as mentioned in the teaser, uh, we are at the 2023 National Storm Chaser Summit. And so we've had the pleasure of interviewing a number of the speakers uh, that were here. And uh, we basically are going to share that with you for this episode. All right, so we're here at 2023 National Storm Chaser Summit. And we're with uh, one of the main organizers, uh, Eric Fox, who's also a law enforcement officer. He's a correspondent with Weather Nation, um, uh, but a big part of this, uh, big part of this event. Yeah. So I just have to say, I'm blown away by the event itself. It's incredible, and I go to a lot of different marketing events and weather events, and this is been amazing and I'm so excited. So just kudos to you. Um, but I would love to know since you've been in this space and you see storm chasers from all over the world, like what is your, one of your biggest takeaways, um, from the event and even, you know, um, just within the first day or so. The enthusiastic manner that people have all across this world for weather and it's like-minded, right? Because when I'm five years old and looking at a cloud and how does that happen, right? And then you get older and you get more involved. You know, I grew up in Amarillo, Texas, and I remember seeing my first tornado at 12 years old, the Pampa, Texas tornado and by chance. And I was hooked, right? And so I think about the young ones here and what we could do in these, these enthusiasts that just want to learn and want more. And so it makes, it just makes everything, the hassle, the, the days, the hours that you put in, it's all worth it. And that's what I love here is just, and you're seeing it from all walks of life. All, we got a guy from New Zealand. We got people here from England. Um, I think there was somebody here from South America. Wow. So, I mean, and it's just, and it's what the purpose of this is, is not just, uh, you know, hey, let's have a good time. There's multiple reasons why we're doing this. And, 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 and the main reason, of course, is I don't ever want to see a friend die doing what we love as enthusiasts. I mean, really, some of us are degreed. Some of us do it for a job, but we all love weather that are here, right? Yeah. We all love weather. So within that, uh, just seeing 
everybody get on the same page. Everybody seems to have the same mission, the same goals. Nobody wants to see nobody hurt. We're learning. We're having fun. We're having doing stuff in the bar that we did 20 years ago. You know, <laughs> that, you know, that that's what it's about. And uh, the enthusiasm is really what I love about this, but from all walks of life. And I, I love that so much. Um, the camaraderie here in the atmosphere is just, you know, unparalleled to anything else. So I think it's fantastic. Now you've been out in the field, um, you know, chasing storms for a while. What is like your top three or what are your top three learnings from being out in the field? And what would you tell like a current storm chaser or a future storm chaser? Safety first, safety first, safety first. Doesn't matter if you, if you, become a problem or you are the problem or you come upon a problem and you're not trained, you become part of that problem. Mm -hmm. uh, Phil and I have really been hammering this stuff. You know, I did, a, I was on a podcast earlier last year talking about being prepared in natural disasters. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, our biggest thing that we need to take away is don't become a part of the problem by trying to help. You can still be a part of the problem. Yeah. And that's why you got to get that training at first aid. You know, we were wanting to do first aid CPR here and we just kept running into legality roadblocks. Uh, but that doesn't mean we're not going to try in the future, but it's because if as a chaser, as you're coming up on these, we're it's, it's going to happen, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter where you're at. It's going to happen. You're going to come up on disasters. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Pearsoff's you know, speech was amazing when talking about that stuff. And so preparation and don't become a part of the problem is, is, is a number one priority in my opinion, being out there. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Um, organizing this event, what are the couple of things, one, two, three things that people don't realize is so difficult to put an event like this on? Because I think a lot of people come and this is great. That it, yeah. They don't realize what goes on behind the scenes to actually make it happen. Well, if this tells you something next Monday, I have a trip down to Dallas uh, to look at venues. So this is year round. This is, this is, if I'm not working or with my, you know, I have priorities with my family, I'm thinking about the next conference. And it's been this way And the wrench and all of this has been COVID, right? Mm -hmm. This was supposed to start four years ago in person. And with COVID, we, we basically did two years of virtual. And then this is our second year in person. Last year I got COVID and I couldn't make it. So uh, it's the organization of how much in my team members of how much time it really does to put in this. I'm telling you thousands of hours combined with everybody and they're all volunteers. We're, this is a nonprofit organization that's going back to a scholarship in uh, the, you know, and that's, we're trying to give back that way. And so when you do it properly as a nonprofit, making sure you got legalities, money, I don't like, to, I'm not going to say the exact number, how much it, took to put this on, but it's astonishing. I got more respect for Roger uh, Hill and Tim Samaras over the last three years than I ever could imagine <laughs> sure, putting right. this on. Because, right. you know, ChaserCon went forever and it was great. 20 some years, yeah. right? That's incredible. And I'm, I'm my fourth year into this and I'm like, I don't know if I keep doing this for year after year, but I also have a great board of directors that keep me in a straight and narrow path, uh, financially uh, decisions, but I, the future of this is what's great, right? I think it's all worth it. And we have the pleasure of being with uh, Jen Walton and Jennifer Brinley. Uh, Jen Walton, storm chaser and organizer of Girls Who Chase. And if you're familiar with the podcast, you should know all about them already, but we'll find out a little bit more today. And Jennifer Brinley is a, a storm chaser, great photographer, by the way, uh, as well. And so, uh, yeah, we get an opportunity to chat a little bit.
So first of all, I have to say, I love your names. I mean, great. <laughs> Isn't names. it amazing? We've got Jennifer cubed on right now. Oh, yes. Three Jennifers against Phil. I think we're winning right now. <laughs> I agree. I'm just going to say that. Yep. But let's talk about the fact that you both gave an amazing talk today and you had everyone in like tears, happy tears, but you kind of got everyone just to think about, okay, like women in this field as a meteorologist, a scientist, you know, and just in general, you know, now getting into things where they've been dominated, you know, by male figures for so long. And so I know Girls Who Chase is something that I don't think you expected it to be what it has become, but it's clearly like a lot of people are feeling the same way. So I want to hear from both of you, but we'll start with Jennifer Walton first. Um, how did girls, you know, who chase start? Well, I often say that it started with an Instagram page, but if I were to back up from there, it really started with frustration, to be honest, yeah. um, with patterns I was seeing in the chase community, not from the chase community, I think, but more kind of culturally insidious patterns that, that we spoke about today in our talk where yeah. um, really female storm chasers had been minimized for a long time, kind of in media and in general. And I discovered as a relatively new arrival to the chase community in 2018 that it was impacting um, my experience as a chaser, yeah. um, I think relative to my male chase counterparts. So um, I have a background in communication and a 20-year career in science communication, mm -hmm. and so was probably somewhat primed to have been looking for that already and dug into it a bit and discovered we were stuck in some pretty deep-rooted patterns and decided to start talking about those, but also elevate and amplify at the same time female storm chasers because it was time. Yeah. So started an Instagram page in July 2021 and here we are. Which is incredible. And by the way, at you know the end of their talk, for those that are listening and that weren't able to come to the event, they asked every female chaser to stand up. And there were more than I expected. And I was like, wow, like it was really exciting and impressive. And it was just, I don't know, it was one of those moments that was just, I don't know, spectacular as a woman, you know, a scientist as well. Now to the other Jennifer, um, kind of the, <laughs> kind of the same question, you know, how did you get involved in Girls Who Chase and what does it mean to you? Yeah, it's really interesting because I've been a girl who chases for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and it's always been kind of like, you're one of the guys type of things, even though I'm not one of the guys, <laughs> you know, yeah. I am a woman. And um, so when Jen came along and was really crusading this cause, mm -hmm. I it caught my attention massively because I, I was like, wow, I recognize this as a moment, a real moment. It's like a, a shifting point, you know, yes. and uh, I knew instantly that I needed to be a part of it to whatever degree I yeah. could be helpful. So, um, but then the amazing thing is reaching out to Jen and learning about her passion and her mission with this project and this platform, I got to meet a really amazing woman. So it's been a little side bonus to actually gain a good friend through all of this. Yes. Uh, and I think the most um, impactful and amazing thing about Girls Who Chase is the fact that it's 
I mean, it's a platform, but it's created this incredible community. And, you know, we talk about a safe space to be yourself and that's truly what it's done. Um, I've always known of women in chasing, but it's different. This is something different. This is a movement of women and young women and girls who are watching because they watch and they watch us and they learn from us. And so um, encouraging that boldness out of girls to pursue whatever your interests are regardless so they can see themselves represented. And that is the thing that drives me in my participation here is to be someone who represents women in chasing for the next generation. Another thing that you talked about in your talk was imposter syndrome. That is something I personally struggle with. I feel like a lot of people do. You're just like, I don't know, even, you know, I have my degrees and in Even with that, I'm just like, oh gosh, it's like so easy to compare yourself to someone else or just think, do I really deserve this? And so I would love to hear from both of you and we'll just kind of go back and forth again. We'll start with you, um, Jennifer Walton, on how you've overcome imposter syndrome when it comes to storm chasing. I'm a really interesting case, I think, in this regard because I still consider myself a relative newbie in the chase community. I mean, especially sitting here next to a veteran like this talking about the topic. And frankly, I I would have probably started Girls Who Chase a year earlier, but continued to repeatedly say, I'm too new. I'm the new one. This isn't my thing. This needs to be done by someone who's been around a lot longer than me. Um, And so I think I still struggle with that. It's like almost a daily if not multi-daily occurrence, where I find myself in situations like we're sitting right now and thinking, you know, I'm sitting next to folks who have a level of experience that it's going to take me another 15 years to achieve. No. Well, (laughs) I mean, it is what it is, right? You know, I don't have the years on me. And it's also frustrating for me, I think, because for all the reasons I listed, I would have started chasing a lot sooner. So to to be sitting here feeling like this, knowing that I actually could have been a veteran almost adds a level of um, additional frustration that I I just don't know quite how to uh, express without using a lot of curse words. Now you, um, (laughs) the other Jennifer, let's talk about, have you ever experienced imposter syndrome? You know, you've got an incredible background as well. And it's just, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. I feel like both of you could write a book, um, but have you ever had to overcome imposter syndrome? Oh, yeah. Imposter syndrome and I, we're hand in hand. <laughs> we, we stroll down the street together, <laughs> you know, and just, I'm going to back up slightly. Yeah. We're talking about all of the things Jen has accomplished yeah. uh, in this and elsewhere. And like, that's one of the things that I mentioned in the talk is that imposter syndrome, we discovered it primarily affects disproportionately successful, accomplished women. Mm -hmm. And women are far more likely to second guess themselves, their qualifications, their skill level when compared to men. So um, it's a real truth. And so, yes, um, in fact, I presented at um, IndyCon on imposter syndrome. And that is actually how Mm -hmm. Jen and I made this connection for this presentation because it's such a relatable experience. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, with all of my experience and features and things and this amazing science research mission crew I get to document, like I live the actual dream. I've been doing this for a long time. I've seen so many tornadoes and yeah. photographed these incredible supercells for so long. And still, you know, when I'm on a team with these 
veterans, YouTube celebrities, real life tornado scientists, like yeah. real, the real deal. I'm looking at myself going, what am I doing here? You You're know? like living the Twister movie, yeah. like in real life. Yeah. You realize that, right? I, I do. It's and awesome. it's, and it's like been a fan. <laughs> it's always been a fantasy as a photographer. If only I could document these you know, these missions, this process. And then I get the gig, I get the dream. And then I second guess myself. And that is a real thing. That's like yeah. a spiraling self-doubt battle. Um, and so overcoming that, it's with the help of my chase partner, my good friends, my husband, you know, the biggest supports in my life to shake me and be like, you're good. Yes. I promise you've earned it. Do you realize like, a million girls would want that job. Yes, of course. You know? like, and, you know, it's on that note, you feel guilt. Like, I feel guilt. Like, I am I wasting this opportunity? You oh know what gosh. I mean? So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's all of the internal battles that we go through as human beings and mm -hmm. as women. And so it is still a battle. I was battling on the stage today a little bit of imposter syndrome, wanting to speak at ChaserCon since I was a wee babe and it finally happening and still wondering if I was supposed to be up there. And it is something I think you battle your whole mm -hmm. life, but... It's just that balancing act of self, you know, um, giving yourself encouragement yeah. and making sure the people in your life you surround yourself with are encouraging, loving people. And I'm really lucky in that regard. All right, Jen Walton, two things. We'll finish up. Uh, first one, we had a phone conversation a couple months ago mm -hmm. because, and it's really no different for any marginalized group where they have a girl's who chase, they, they have the group name in their organization. And, you know, so my question was, when the goal, the ultimate goal is to not have girls who chase, mm -hmm. it's just people who chase. Mm -hmm. What does having that name and building that brand, what does that do for trying to create, you know, because it's understandable that you start with that, right? You have to, to bring that group together but then how do you build on that so that it's no longer a marginalized group? It just becomes a part of the, the overall group. And you had a great answer for me even on the phone, but was even better today. But um, yeah, share, share it with everybody that answer. Yeah. Well, and I'd finally had some time to think about it after that phone conversation. Um, and I kept saying to, to Jen, when we were preparing, I was like, Phil's gonna, <laughs> Phil's gonna be like, Oh boy. <laughs> Um, the answer was that it, it made sense at the time. It makes sense now. Um, it defines ultimately who we would want our audience to be. It's who we want to see this and realizes for them because that group doesn't have a lot that's for them. And that's young girls and women. Um, but over time, the goal is to go from female storm chaser to storm chaser. And so I don't see necessarily a static future for girls who chase. Um, even after some of the conversations I've had today, my brain is already spinning with, would this evolve into something even broader? What would this look like? And I think one of the things that has made this, like we're riding a wave essentially is what it feels like. Yeah. Um, and so instead of sort of holding a certain course or insisting we be a certain thing, we're what's needed in the moment. And there may come a time where, you know, we are just all storm chasers and there isn't a future 
for girls who chase. And it's not a good or bad thing. It's just, it means we were successful. It's a good essentially. thing. I yeah, think it's a, great it's a very thing. good thing. Yeah. So it, it, I don't think it necessarily has any kind of static course. It's going to evolve. All right. Last thing. Um, there will be more information on this episode about spring training, but give us a tea. I'm excited about that. Give us a little teaser about that and what that's all about. Yeah. And thanks to Stormfront Freaks for being a partner in that for us. So spring training is a day long virtual on fully virtual online training, uh, March 4th. 2023. It is um, intended to be kind of build a foundation largely for entry level storm chasers. But frankly, I think it will be highly useful for anyone who's just looking to kind of shake the rust off or brush up on a specific topic. Um, and it's really for the folks who have approached girls who chase and said, I really want to get started, but I just don't quite know how. So we've gathered a lot of, um, great educational experts um, in one place to deliver presentations on entry level kind of 101 level topics. So forecasting, how the storm prediction center works, um, safety for storm chasers, um, all the way to video sales and lightning photography. So take your pick, essentially, um, kind of a one-stop shop. But the big reason that we're doing it online this way is because we're a global community. Not everyone can afford to travel to Oklahoma City for a weekend. Um, and we want to make sure that this education is accessible to everyone. And I would also add, in addition to the presentations, um, also for that reason, we're having what I'm calling Q&A panels. So two panels of experts in meteorology and storm chasing um, from a variety of different backgrounds. So broadcast meteorology, research in academia, National Weather Service, and then storm chasers who are from uh, wildly different areas who chase um, different types of things, talking about background. And it's an opportunity to ask me career questions, um, have a conversation with someone, make a connection that you wouldn't otherwise maybe feel comfortable making if you just were to cold contact. Yeah. Um, so it's a, another way to kind of make connections and network and, and get to know the field a little bit better. So it's spring training. So if you would like more information, it's girlswhochase.com slash spring training. Got the full schedule and everybody's bios and information posted and come check it out. So we're here at the 2023 National Storm Chaser Summit with Eddie Aldrin, uh, who's an EMA director up in Kansas. I had a great talk uh, yesterday about um, safety, storm chaser safety. Uh, it was really good. Jen? It was. It was incredible. And so I think one of the biggest things when it comes to storm chasing is you get that tunnel vision, right? Mm -hmm. You get in the zone and it's just like you've got to get the storm. And you don't think about your own safety, let alone the safety of others. And so what is like, you know, probably your top three tips for when it comes to storm chasing? Well, the first thing is be always be prepared. I mean, uh, that's not only with the supplies you have, but the, the knowledge you have. There's so many times that I've seen chasers out uh, in my position now as a EM director, but also when I was in law enforcement, you'd have people chasing out there that don't have the knowledge to stay safe. Yeah. So one thing in my talk yesterday that I really want to hit on is learn, learn, and learn. There's endless possibilities of weather knowledge that you can have. So uh, always continue to 
learn as much as you can. Um, also, uh, I, I always would chase with just myself, but having that second person in there, that way they're keeping you on track. Um, I've been in some pretty hairy situations where I've gotten really close because I wasn't paying attention either to driving or to a tornado just because I was uh, thinking of other things in the car. Uh, so having that tunnel vision, always not being on the prize, but also uh, being aware of your surroundings would help out quite a bit. So how does being a storm chaser help you be as being an EMA director, especially during those, you know, extremely severe events where there's multiple storms, multiple tornadoes, maybe all on the ground at the same time. How does right. that help you? Yeah. Uh, so the, the forecasting parts helped me out quite a bit. I'll even have uh, EMs from across the state, uh, even out in Western Kansas that are calling me that day, asking me, Hey, what's going to happen today? What are your thoughts? Uh, things of that sort. So the forecasting's always helped. Uh, also, when something is on the ground, knowing how it's going to act, like knowing which way it's going to go and things of that sort, it's helped out quite a bit. And it's helped me create plans, uh, disaster plans, which is a big part of emergency management, uh, knowing how storms operate and what to look for and things of that sort have really helped out with the job. So here at the 2023 National Storm Chasing Summit with uh, medical doctor, Jason Persoff and Storm Chaser, but uh, Jason, you had a great talk tonight. You know, one of my passions certainly has been, as a lot of our listeners know, Storm Chaser safety, not only personal safety, but also, hey, if you're going to be around uh, storms, you're probably also going to end up at some point around a lot of damage and people that might need assistance. So uh, do something to be helpful, get certified, get trained, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I want to talk uh, on two things. Uh, number one, talk a little bit about from a personal standpoint. Storm chasers, what are some things personally that you feel they can be doing to be safer? Um, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what they can do post-disaster kind of stuff. Sure. So, you know, the, uh, part of my talk title had to do with zero metering, which is a term that um, us old guys had to look up. Um, you know, I would say, yeah. you know, you have some gray hair, but that, that would actually be that's euphemism. <laughs> well, that's good, good man. <laughs> but, you know, um, I'd not heard that term until this past year and it refers to behavior where you get as close as you possibly can to a tornado. And this has been, you know, definitely, uh, becoming more and more of a trend over the years. Um, certainly it's not new. Um, but it, it, one of the things that, that always strikes me about that kind of behavior is that, um, Chasers very frequently who are in the kind of zero meter club are typically speeding. I'm, I'm not one to point fingers. I speed too, but speeding, they may be dealing with a lot of electronics because they're trying to get the most extreme video uploaded as fast as possible. Um, it's a very competitive field when you're talking about zero metering folks. It, and I think the, the danger is that a lot of times um, these chasers are putting others in harm's way, particularly those who may have just been struck by the tornado. Um, a lot of the behavior is very self-centered. Um, you know, and chasing in and of itself is pretty self-centered because we're going because we're getting excited by mm -hmm. these sorts of things. But I think that when we when we talk about this type of behavior, I think it puts others at risk and um, particularly the zero metering thing. So I was trying to focus a little bit on how that behavior, 
I'm not trying to sway minds, but to try and just take a look at at the behavior itself and and how are you being of service to the communities through which you're traveling. I mean, you know, I I one of the biggest things for me is I think every chaser represents the chaser community, whether they mean to or not. Um, and you know, the chaser community in and of itself has a pretty rocky reputation if you start talking about emergency management circles such as police and fire. Um, and part of it is that, you know, a lot of us will travel through these damaged paths and instead of stopping to help in any way, shape or form, which is part of what my talk was about, um, they continue to either film the footage of the disaster that's just happened or, you know, drive right past. And I think that that's, that's a concern. So, so let's talk now about the damage because that's, um, again, just cause you chase doesn't mean you'll always see that but you're certainly putting yourself on a higher chance that you will at yeah. some point. So what are things that chasers can do to put themselves in a successful position to be of help and to be of service? I think the most important thing to recognize is you don't have to be trained to do the most fundamental things uh, when you come across a disaster, be it from storm chasing or anything else. And that is um, many states, actually all 50 states have a good Samaritan laws. And in many of those states, the good Samaritan laws also have a duty to respond built into that, saying that any citizen who sees another citizen who may be physically harmed has a responsibility to get in touch with authorities so that they're aware that, that somebody in, in has been harmed and needs assistance. So one of the most fundamental things is we as chasers have a duty to at least notify it. Um, through 911 um, that something has happened where there's injured parties. I think that's the most fundamental thing. It's not that hard and it can be built into your chase, but even just doing that is a very important part of this. I can remember there was a um, car accident years ago that I had responded to um, while out chasing and, you know, that no one was really seriously injured, but about half an hour went by and there was still no ambulance or police and I'd been taking care of this guy, and I'm like, did anyone call 911? No one had. But but hundreds of chasers had passed by this particular vehicle. Sure. There had not been a single 911 call. So taking some responsibility like that. But the other thing that I pointed out in my talk is, you know, even if you're not trained in first aid, even if you have no idea what you're doing, you can actually still be a human being to another human being. And being willing to, you know, I, I talked about how when my wife and I are out driving and we come across a car accident, we usually take on these very standard roles. I'll get in there and start trying to do the medicine part and triaging and establishing command. But my wife will, will grab a blanket out of the back of the car and go and sit with the victims and just hold their hand or be present with them. And it's extraordinarily powerful when you ask them at the end who they remember, they remember my wife. She yeah. renders a far better aid to them than my diagnostic skills do. And so I think, you know, even if you don't know what to do, you can still be of comfort to somebody. The other part is, you know, a lot of people think about, you know, responding to disasters as having to have a capital R response. You know, the, it has to be this big and huge and involved and you need to know stuff. And that's very overwhelming. Yeah. Responses yeah. need to be thought of in very small, tangible ways. You can either learn how to manage a scene um, through learning some basic skills um, on how to manage disaster scene, um, including how to come up with strategy and tactics um, for how you're going to carry out any form of operation there. Or you can learn, you know, basic first aid, which is really easy to learn. And I strongly recommend people take a course called Stop the Bleed. 
which is a wonderful course, teaches you how to use tourniquets and to, to help stop people from bleeding. And these are very simple things you can do and, and be very effective in helping people after a disaster. Join the AMS Weather Band at amsweatherband.org and you can become a part of the American Meteorological Society whose members have been at the forefront of weather, water, and climate research for over 100 years. You're going to be able to go behind the scenes with the 10,000 plus scientists, broadcasters, educators, and researchers of the AMS. And listen to this. For the month of February, they're going to be featuring a two-day, they're calling it a jamposium, on the 24th and 25th of February. They're featuring expert speakers and interactive discussions on the latest science and the most impactful topics. So you can learn more and take advantage of 50% off membership at amsweatherband.org. All right, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back with more from the National Storm Chaser Summit. Time for this edition of Stormfront Freaks Podcast, Storm Chaser Safety Tip. Join retired fire battalion chief Randy Denzer, EMA director Eddie Aldrin, and police officer Eric Fox as we discuss some of the most common storm chaser safety pitfalls to avoid. All right, so we're talking storm chaser safety tips. I've got Randy Denzer. He's a retired fire battalion chief. He's got over 30 years in fire service, and he's a current storm spotter and public safety director for the Spotter Network. Uh, we've also got Eddie Aldrin. He's a former law enforcement officer and current storm chaser and director of emergency management for Nemaha County in Kansas. And last, Eric Fox, current police officer in Davis, Oklahoma, and a field correspondent for Weather Nation TV. So gentlemen, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, team chasing, basically multiple vehicle team chasing versus solo chasing as we talk about safety items to be thinking about. Randy, I'm going to start with you. I know you've got a little experience uh, caravan chasing. Uh, I guess tell us what, what are some of the easy to identify hazards with uh, chasing in a caravan that people need to be aware of? Well, one of the biggest hazards is having too much fun in carriage van chasing. It's too bad there's not more of it anymore, first of all, Phil. Uh, those were the good old days, uh, great times. Um, Safety-wise, one of the, one of the uh, interesting aspects of having uh, caravan chase was that uh, the safety role, the safety officer role was kind of passed around between the group. And so there was always somebody who was kind of dedicated into saying, hey, are we being safe here? One of the biggest issues with uh, with caravan chasing is that not just getting one vehicle stuck or getting one vehicle into a problem, but getting four or five vehicles into a problem, a little bit, which is a little different than individual chasing because when you're individually chasing, you just worry about yourself. If you're in that lead vehicle on a caravan chase or team chasing, you need to make sure that where you're going, there's plenty of room to turn around for a whole group of vehicles. It's a, it, it can be a, a quite a task. One of the, one of the biggest uh, safety items, I think, for caravan or team chasing communications between the vehicles using whether it's a CB radio, ham radio, or some type of radio, 
and making sure that uh, all actions, you know, whether you're going to make a left-hand turn coming up, all that stuff is actually relayed to the whole team so everybody knows exactly what's going on and you're all on the same page. Eddie, uh, I want to jump to you, talk a little bit about uh, solo storm chasing and, and what are some of the biggest safety hazards and things to be aware of if you are chasing by yourself? The biggest thing when you're solo chasing, situational awareness, uh, coming from law enforcement, my previous career before the one I'm in now, and Eric can talk to this being uh, current law enforcement, is always having situational awareness. When you're driving down the road, and it was a lot easier when the Randy and Eric and I first started. We were chasing with cell phones because there weren't laptops and radar in your uh, car to have to pay attention to. Um, things were a lot simpler back then. But with all the distractions that we have now, when it comes to storm chasing, while also having to pay attention to actually driving, I think people now have less uh, situational awareness uh, when it comes to storms. Eric, how about you talking a little bit more about uh, solo storm chasing? If someone were to decide to go out on their own, what would you want to make sure that they're aware of? I, I would start off by saying I, I would try to highly advise against it, especially if you are a new chaser. Just because there's so much going on in that car and to keep yourself safe, you know, it, it is extremely distracting to have, you know, your cell phone nowadays. A lot of people are kind of getting away from the laptops and the, the radars on the laptops where they're looking at their phones. Well, guys, it's just as dangerous as texting and driving. So if you've got that person over there that navigating and looking at radar, well, you got somebody on the wheel, that's what should happen. But if you are by yourself, that was the question. If you're going to look at radar, pull over. Don't don't be looking at the radar here and trying to drive. So pre-plan it. And what I, what I say pre-plan, like, okay, get in a car beforehand, before a chase, and say, hey, can I do this? Can Is things situated in the car correctly by myself where I'm not distracted, keep my eyes on the road and the atmosphere and stay safe? So practice this stuff beforehand as you're driving, as you're going to work. Hey, if I'm on a chase, what am I going to do? Am I going to place this here? How, you know, I got to keep my hands on the wheel. What can I do? And just pre-plan if you're by yourself because that's going to alleviate those distractions when you're actually on that tornado or storm. Great, great. Yep, thanks, gentlemen. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Uh, so we are here at the National Storm Chaser Summit 2023, and we're here with Chaser Jeff Petrowski and, of course, our co-host, Jen Watson. Jen, uh, we'll start with a couple questions. Internet, storm chasing, and everything, and how Starlink is going to change, like, our world as we know it really fast and really soon. Right. So 
you know, I think our best storm chasing days are ahead of us, mm-hmm. right? And um, I think the um, if you look at what's happening globally right now with Starlink and the rapid acceleration of the uh, you know of the uh, fifty sixty uh, version one of the, uh, the um, Starlink uh, satellites out there now, and then version two is coming right yeah. uh, very very soon, and those start launching and they're extremely powerful. Um, we're going to have global coverage, and the days where we can go anywhere in the world take your cell phone and have emergency communications and also text, SMS text, but also be able to talk on a global scale. There, there will no more very soon. You'll be able to go anywhere in the world. And I just saw a live shot this last couple of weeks ago from Mount Everest with a Starlink. The guy carried a battery pack up okay. with the Starlink on top of Mount Everest. The guy was live from the summit. Okay. okay. Uh, I showed my presentation that the live shot from Antarctica, mm-hmm. right from the sounds, uh, Murdo Bay uh, expedition there, the science is there. And there's going to be between planes, uh, cars, automobiles, people's cell phones, global communications on a global scale is going to change forever as we know it today. And it's going to open a lot of opportunities. It's also going to save hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of lives globally over time. Because the days of not being able to reach somebody on a mountain because of an avalanche or somebody's stuck in debris like Hurricane Harvey or we got a Joplin mm-hmm. situation, those days going forward are over. You'll have global communications anywhere in the world, in the middle of the ocean, wherever you're at. And that's really exciting, right? And it's also not just exciting from a safety and storm chasing. It's also exciting for the opportunities going forward because there's going to be a whole new inventions of a lot of technologies based on that right that's yeah. gonna that's, help the I think that's a, a big part right there right. That's, what it, else it's is a massive come from that massive yeah. part of it yeah. for yeah. sure so on a micro level let's go back to starlink what would be the two things as a chaser that starlink is gonna change things as a storm chaser right. well, i can't tell you i've been in the field thousands of times where we've had total infrastructure failure of communications mm-hmm. i've got people that are injured or killed mm-hmm. i'm out in the middle of nowhere i can't get a hold of anybody via the phone or radio or whatever, it's extremely frustrating, right? To be able to know you can take your phone uh, probably this year uh, with T-Mobile and Starlink and get an SS, SMS message out, text, um, here's my location, here's what's going on, I need help, or be able to pick up that phone call. I, I tell you, it was really invigorating just the short time I've had Starlink, test at the house, but also it gave, my wife, it gave Kathy a comfort factor, your partner, that, you know what, if my husband or my wife wants to go on this expedition or they want to go chase into Antarctica or they want to go shoot the lights in the um, Iceland, uh, they take Starlink with you or version thereof, right? Yeah. And I have communication. I can be FaceTime with you anywhere in the world, right live. Yeah. Or my kids, if I got a, a parent that's remote part of the world, be able to have that instant communications in the middle of nowhere, right? right? That's never happened before. Yeah. And you think just about how much the satisfaction you're going to get that you know you can reach out and talk to your wife or your kids can be live on your phone yeah. anywhere in the world in a matter of seconds. Yeah. That's a game changer, guys. It changes everything global as we know it today. So, so what would be, sorry, what would be one or two things that you feel Starlink maybe isn't maybe quite there. They got to make some, a few more adjustments to make it a more widespread chaser. Oh, uh, from the chaser community. Item. Yeah. I yeah. You got to have a, a uh, Starlink receiver that um, is more durable, right? That it, we can get in those baseball hell events. And that's going to happen. <laughs> but you're just going to get those things are going to drive into them. Yeah, you're going to yeah. have those things that, you know, you get a baseball hell that ejects five miles from your, the cores, like, 
six miles to the northwest. Right. And all of a sudden, this uprush, 60,000 feet, and boom, here comes a baseball yeah. on it. It ejected it, right? It's all happened to us. We're not even near the core. They have high impact. Um, kind of like the truck and, um, you know, golf ball base, most 99.9% of the people in the world are not going to go into, they're not looking for severe weather. They're not going to be <laughs> right. near in that environment. Right. But yeah. if you did, it'd be nice to know that we're going to survive that. Right. right. And um, in the coming versions going forward, I, I would uh, anticipate uh, uh, even better uh, type uh, units that will, will stand yeah. even higher. Right. Yeah. But I think yeah. it's very impressive. If you look at the first version now with the, with the uh, wedge mount, yeah, uh, kind of joking about you know wedge mount yeah. tornadoes, wedge mount tornadoes, hurricanes. But the point is, it's rated 175 miles an hour. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, pretty that's, good. that's that's getting that's getting in. A, yeah. I don't know from what I know about today. I'd call that uh, that's the Petrosky approved version, <laughs> right? That's awesome. Right. It's, it's the Petrovsky stamps on that, yeah. right? I mean, come on, let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, I was doing I was doing communication stuff back in the eighties. A lot of people, most of yours don't know this. It, it, can I have it like five more minutes? Yes, yeah, that's incredible. Ninety nine percent of the world doesn't know this. This is a true story. This is amazing. When cellular one in Chicago first came out with the cell phone, the three watt back phone. You know, we had those outside antennas. We had those little back phones, the big yeah. heavy deals, the big big battery brick. <laughs> um, I was in Kansas City, and a local TV engineer says, "Hey, you in town for today or tomorrow?" See, I'm in, in town through tomorrow. I see customer, several customers. He says, "Would you like some tickets to a military show?" And I said, "That'd be kind of cool." And it's just a little, it's kind of technology. And this engineer knew I was a technical nut. And I said, "Yeah, I can check that out." So when I was there, Sony had a, a device that looked like about the size of a, a laptop and they called it the PVT 115. I remember it just like it was yesterday. <laughs> and I said, it was a steel store and uh, it had a little RCA BNC connector on the side. And what it did, it allowed you to take a camera and you plugged it into this little machine and I'd hit a button and it would, it would grab a color image of one of the cameras pointing out, but here's the cool thing. <laughs> so I found that at that show literally a couple days later, I'm in Oklahoma City. Cellular One calls me because they know I'm in this no, uh, sure. yeah. space. They go, we got something we think you, you might be interested in. I said, what's that? It was called the black box. Not the black box on the plane, right. but a black box. And it was about the size of your iPhone. Okay. And it allowed you to have dial tone on a computer in your car. <laughs> so that back phone, okay, because it didn't mm. give you dial tone, this yeah. little thing goes ding when you plugged it in. It was, had an RJ45 connector. Yep. So my light bulb goes off. I go, this is 48 hours after just been the show in Kansas City. I said, you know what? I've got technology. If I can make that marry with this, mm -hmm. I can help everybody, yeah. right? Because mm -hmm. I'm all about getting pictures and stuff to the TV stations and people as quick as possible. Right. Okay, this is 1980. <laughs> 42 <laughs> plus years ago, right? It's yeah. way back there. Way, way, way back. Wow. So anyway, we got a meeting set up in Oklahoma City, right here in Oklahoma City, a TV station, brought the Sony guy in. Brett brought Sawyer one in, had all the district managers, VP from Chicago came down and they said, what are we going to do? I said, I'm going to show you. We're going to send an image from the parking lot into the station. So you have a unit out in the car, mm -hmm. you had a unit at the station, I had a dial in phone number and I did a still store, grab the color picture and I hit dial, hit the next button. It dialed the number four or five, whatever, it hit the number yeah. and then it connected and it wasn't real fast. It was like, I think it was 9,600 baud. And it's slow, sure. right. but it's a color image. And it would literally, the receipt side, they'd have it on a monitor. It would come down one line at a time. Okay. And they yeah. take wow. 10 minutes for the picture. Color image, 1980, over cell phone. 1980, we're transmitting 
pictures over cell phone. That's so, amazing. Oh yeah. And so, uh, that was the beginning of the groundbreaking, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the next thing. And then we, then we developed the technology. Most people don't know this. We developed technology where it took cell, four cell phones. A couple years later, we took four back phones and a computer. And we could record a, a minute, two-minute clip out in the field. And I, these four uh, back phones would call um, uh, back to the station, like four landlines. And it basically, it's stored in four. I've recorded the event just happened and it would dial those numbers. And if the cell phone dropped off or one of the four lines drop off, it moved the data to all the other lines, line two, three or four or line one or whatever. until all the video sit and then it put hmm. all the video together, put all the line video back together and though the lines dropped off and then they can play the video back. Okay. Got a patent for that. Right? Wow. It's a utility patent. It's still, it's still available. To, I still have it today. Right. So that's why you make all the big bucks. Huh? Yeah. No, not the big bucks. It didn't ever actually make me any big bucks at all. But what it did do is it shows if you push the envelope, yeah. you can make, you got to think outside the box daily. It's how it's really not about selling what I'm selling. Cause I'm not yeah. selling Starlink. I'm, I'm not right. in the business. What I'm doing is <clears throat> I understand the big picture. I always think outside the box. How's this technology going to help humanity? How's it going to help the next industry? How am I going to be able to do my job better? How's it going to be for safety for officers and policemen? They're out in the middle of nowhere and they need emergency communications quickly, right? right. Yeah. Because it's got an escalating situation. So I've had a history of this, 40 years of this kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So I get it, right? So it, it's just, I love that stuff, right? I, I just breathe. I, yeah, eat, I, I love that kind of stuff. And that's, that's my deal, right? I love it. Here at the 2023 National Storm Chaser Summit, and uh, again, we have the joy of uh, sitting down with Hurricane Man, Josh Morgerman. And Josh, you had an opportunity again to speak today. And what was cool is uh, th there was a hurricane hunter here today. You are opening this thing up, buddy. And so that, which is awesome. That's great. <laughs> and I would love for you to just in about a minute or two, kind of sum up that first part of your talk, if you will, where, you know, a lot of people like routine, if you like your comforts, this maybe isn't for you, but kind of sum up what if they want to be like you and chase you know maybe what they should be thinking of glad you liked it yeah i wanted to you know this this room is full of so many excellent storm chasers and i, I think of it as sort of like a tornado scene but there's a lot of a lot of people here are excellent hurricane chasers so i wanted to bring new insights and i thought the way to bring new insights here is to talk about chasing abroad yeah. outside of the united states because that's what that's what i think there's not a lot of that going on and mm -hmm. what i wanted to emphasize in my talk which you picked up is that once you leave the united states and you're chasing uh you know the other parts of north america you know mexico central america the caribbean islands the bahamas that it is a completely different ball game everything about it all the things we take for granted here amazing radar you know paved roads high population density all those things we take for granted you don't necessarily have those things in other places and i was trying to just emphasize to folks that you know be ready you know you know go for it but, but be ready because it's a different sport yeah and i love your tip of like let's say you're going to chase in mexico go to Mexico before you're under the gun, right? Of like the stress and the storms approaching, just so you can get like the lay of the land, you understand the culture and other things that are going on, just so you're not surprised and in like a bad situation. Because if you don't, like you said, you suggested you don't want your first chase abroad or your first trip abroad to be a chase, right? You want to have some experience. Yeah, yeah. And, and what are some of the things, because I know like packing wise, um, you know, to bring with you, what are like the, a couple of the things that you always bring if you're chasing abroad? Well, I've always been about 
portability. Like one thing I noticed is like the tornado scene and the domestic American chasing scene is it's the opposite of portability. It's about big tricked out vehicles and monster trucks. And it's like with those big ass wheels and light bars and just like, Whoa, yeah. you know, I'm always like, wow. And like, and you know, of course Reed, you know, he sets the, like the pace with that, with his big, like, you know, special custom vehicles and everything else. Chasing abroad is completely different. It's, it's all about portability. So, so for me, it's about things being small and compact because sometimes yeah. like if I'm chasing in certain parts of the Pacific ocean it's it's like a series of connecting flights so you mm -hmm. just need small carry-ons so so mm -hmm. for me it's about you know my kestrel meters which are those little tiny devices which are very accurate yeah but collect very good data um i do most of my filming i this is going to sound so lame but after years of using expensive camcorders i do most of my filming with a couple of high-end smartphones because the cameras are so good now and they're yeah. more water resistant yes and, yes and like the 100%. iphone 13 does beautiful nighttime it's like it really works well with low light i mean it's like it's crazy so and, and the added benefit is smartphones are very portable. Yes. So for me, it's all about, you know, my iPad, of course, is like a, you know, the thing is surgically attached to me. But yeah, for me, it's all about like keeping it small. Now, I started to get different ideas. You know, Jeff Petrowski's talk about Starlink was very interesting. And I started getting crazy ideas in my mind about <laughs> traveling with that thing because I want to yes. have data coverage in these remote areas in the developing world, you know. Yeah, I, I completely understand that. Now, one of the things that you do, I think maybe even more than any other chaser is the data you collect, the analytics, and that you send it to like the National Weather Service or National Hurricane Center. It is phenomenal. Like the in-depth analysis, like I mean, I chase and I'm fascinated by the storms and I do it, you know, for the science and the learning, but I don't write reports afterward. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the analysis you do and the reports that you do send to the National Hurricane Center along with, was it uh, Hurricane Roslyn? Yes. Uh, talk a little bit about, you know, what you did for Hurricane Roslyn as well. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, so I'm not a scientist and I, you know, I didn't like, I actually studied history in college. That was like where my degree, um, you know, was in, um, so because of that, it's not like I'm overcompensating, but I, but I want, if I'm sending my data out, I want to make sure that, that anyone who's reading it understands that the data were carefully collected and that they're quality controlled. And so I, so I, I don't just send, okay, here's the lowest pressure reading I got. I send it with a report that says, okay, here's the exact coordinates. Here's how I calibrated. And here's the assumptions that I used, for example, X elevation yeah. so that if the elevation was wrong, then it can be corrected. But like, I really try to just very carefully document everything. And then, of course, analyze the data and show things like, you know, steep gradients or other like kind of, or, or you know, uh, evidence of mesovortices or other stuff like that. I mean, I don't know if the Hurricane Center uses like some of my analysis, but just I just want to the, the, I write the reports because I want to I want to just really document what went into collecting the data so folks know it's good data because, you know, it, it's it, I actually made a video about this online, but it's like it's. It, it's not just enough to just be like, Oh, I got this pressure reading. Like you need to know, okay, did you calibrate properly for your elevation? Did the device move around? Yeah. Were you driving around with it? You know, because that affects like the V there's all these things. And like, you know, there, there's, it's important that data are quality controlled. And I guess I'm nerding out a little bit. That's I why I write it. these reports. Yes. So, yeah, I love it so much. So uh, where can people find these reports? Uh so I keep them all, um, it, they're nicely organized. If you go to my site, icyclone.com, okay. go to the chases section, and then all the chases are there by the name of the hurricane. And if you go on the page for that hurricane, if there is a report, there's a big orange button awesome. that says download the report. And I don't do it for every hurricane. I do it for ones where I, I feel like I collect, um, you know, 
consequential data. Yeah. Which is like more chases than not, but some chases like the equipment malfunctions or I don't deploy them in the right places or the data are just like whatever. They're just crap. And I'm just like, okay, I'm not writing a report. There's not enough here. You yeah. know? So a uh, question I've got for you is really just a follow up to 2022 uh, just because uh, we've had you on. seems like each year we kind of get a follow up, Josh, mm -hmm. of what you've done, where you've been. Anything that you learned specifically from 2022 that you're knowing you're going to take into 2023? Anything that stood out? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I felt very good about my, um, my, my chases abroad. I feel like the, my American chasing, for some reason, my last couple of American chases, like the big ones, like Ian uh, last year and Ida the year before, I felt like I haven't, for some reason, I haven't chased those hurricanes as just like aggressively as I should have. I mean, I got right in the Ivy and, but I was in Punta Gorda and I'm like, there were some guys that were out further, they were further out, like kind of on the islands and stuff. And I'm like, you know, maybe I should have done that too. So I think, um, I think my resolution going into 2023 is, you know, with the next big American hurricane, like just, just that added level of aggression that I bring to my foreign chasing where I feel like I'm more, much more of a daredevil for some reason. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I get inspired, you know, there's like some of the zero meter tornado folks are like, you know, who are like a little crazy. And I know a lot of people really frown on that. I know it's very controversial. Yeah. I, I have a rule. I, I won't criticize any chasers. I'll only praise chasers because I remember when I was like starting out and young and just like the, the veterans, like, you know, you're just reckless. And I'm like, and I promised myself I would not be that person ever. So I just will not criticize anyone. But I, you know, some of the, like some of the chasers, I, I hate to say this because I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm encouraging bad behavior, but chaser lifestyle is the object of the lifestyle is your, your, your whole life. You're walking along the edge of a cliff and your whole, the whole trick is like, how close can I get to the edge of it without falling off a cliff and dying. Yeah. And I feel like that's the lifestyle all of us are leading. And I'm always like, okay, am I getting close enough to it? I think in general, yes. Cause I'm going to like developing nations on the other side of the earth for cat fives. I mean, I think I've done some hardcore chasing, but there are certain chases where I look back and I'm like, you know what? I, I, I didn't go all in on that one. I played it safe or I, or I didn't, you know, I, like there, there's always that nags me on certain chases. I feel like I wasn't aggressive enough. Hi, podcast listeners. It's Jen, founder of Girls Who Chase. If you've ever thought to yourself, I'd love to start storm chasing, but I have no idea how to get started, believe me, you're not alone. We've been hearing this over and over since we launched Girls Who Chase in early 2022, and I've thought a lot about how we might be able to help. After all, our mission is not just to inspire and empower, it's to equip as well. Today, I've got some exciting news for you. We've put together a virtual storm chase training we'll be offering Saturday, March 4th, 2023, that I'm calling Spring Training. And yes, the pun is intended. Just like in baseball, we will gather every spring to shake off the rust, refresh our skills, and get ready to hit a home run. Spring Training, which we're providing in partnership with the leading meteorology education organization, Comet's MetEd program, will provide foundational, operational, and accessible information and training material for storm chasers at all levels, from those who want to begin their chase education or brush up on the basics, to more advanced chasers wanting to learn more in depth about specialized topics. If you're wondering, yes, you can afford this. This event will always be held virtually and remain affordable. Girls Who Chase is a global community and we believe strongly in making science and learning accessible to everyone without the constraints of travel or financial hardship. 
And if you can't make it on March 4th, don't worry. We'll be recording all presentations and they'll be made permanently available to registrants. For all the details, including topics, speakers, and the schedule, please go to girlswhochase.com slash spring training. We hope to see you there. All right, so here at the uh, 2023 National Storm Chaser Summit, and we're uh, joined today by Tim Marshall, legendary storm chaser and engineer. Uh, so appreciate you giving us a, a few minutes of your time, Tim. Jen? Tim, this is truly an honor because you're kind of a big deal. So I have to know this. Uh, the original Twister movie, well, there only is one Twister movie, but now we're working on a Twister sequel in 1996. You helped play a part in that, right? You weren't actually in the movie, but didn't you help somehow um, with the production of it, the science behind it? There, there's a two prong here. There's okay. uh, before, during, and after, but uh, the, uh, the the during is what I was least involved with. Okay. Okay. So it was really the before and after. So before the Twister movie, there's a 1993. I get a letter from Amblin Entertainment saying. Uh, they they saw that I had some sort of uh, pamphlet that I was selling VHS tapes. I was I had booklets, and they wanted it all. So I did a huge package, sent it off to Hollywood, and you know, time went by. They sent me a nice T-shirt. They sent me <laughs> a nice letter, you know, with the ET across it. Yeah, and I still have that. That was really nice. But I didn't hear anything for about two years. And then in the pre-production phase of the movie, uh, they contacted me again and they said, uh, uh, you know, we'd like, do you have any kind of fancy chase vehicle? And I said, oh yeah, we have one of the fanciest vehicles around. Uh, my friend Carson Eads, he was a uh, uh, electronics engineer. Yeah. He had put together a state-of-the-art van that was just chock full. It was amazing. He took out the back seats, put a desk in there. We got uh, internet there. That's with awesome. a huge, you know, one of those huge monitors back there. Yeah. And uh, we had, of course, acoustic couplers back in there. And he had an egg beater antenna on the back where he, uh, we could get the weather channel. Yeah. Uh, it wow. automatically focused in. That's amazing. And we could get the weather channel good on the road. Oh, he, I mean, he was absolutely That's amazing. He's ahead of his time. So they said, oh, my God. He said, we're, we're going to Oklahoma City. Why don't you uh, bring your van up and let's take a look at it. So fine. So I met the assistant director of the movie. And... Uh, he went and he said, you mind if you take photos of it? And I said, oh, no, we took photos of it. And then they, they did this pitch. We want you to be technical advisor for the movie Twister. And I said, okay, well, uh, what's that involved? Nine months of work. Uh, you'll be paid uh, X amount of dollars. And, uh, you know, you'll have room and board wow. for nine months. That's amazing. So I said, well, here's the problem. The money is a third of what my salary is. And to leave work for nine months is going to be difficult. I mean, I can do it probably, yeah. but, you know, so I gave them a figure and they said, we're not even paying Bill Paxton that, that <laughs> amount of money. <okay?" laughs> and you have to understand something, you know, Steven Spielberg, uh, you know, is obviously looking at cost cutting measures on this movie. So it has to be, you know, bottom barrel stuff. So really, the, the plus for you, Tim, would be that you would have on your resume that you worked on a movie with Steven Spielberg, and there you go. And I go, well, you know, Steven Spielberg and I have one thing in common. We're both Jewish, you see? So 
the thing is, it, it, it matters to me what the dollars are. Sure. All right. That, that sure. I have to break away for nine months, yeah. be technical advisor on a movie, and then. So we went around two, three, four meetings for over a month, could not reach a financial agreement. Yeah. So they said, well, do you have anybody you can recommend? And I said, yes, I do. I have a friend of mine, Vince Miller, who was at the Weather Channel. It's a good friend of mine, buddy of mine. Yeah. He just got uh, let go, and he is looking for something to do. So he would be your man. Plus, he lives in Norman, Oklahoma. So oh, it was, yeah. was great. So uh, I hitched them two together, and uh, they, they, they meshed. Nice. And they said, okay. So Vince Miller was the technical advisor. So Vince told me, he said, well, what do you want out of the deal? And I go, I want two tickets, red carpet premiere, and I want to go to the reception. He says, you got it. So that's amazing. I went to the premiere of the Twister movie. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I got to see Helen Hunt and talk with Bill Paxton and Jan DeBont and all those guys. You know, he's, John just came off of Speed, which was one of his uh, big movie yeah. uh, successes there. Yeah. And, uh, so I felt pretty good. And, and Bill Paxton was one of the most down to earth guys. Uh, amazing. Uh, he was uh, in Wakito uh, when they weren't using him. Uh, he would go out and play football with the local kids. You know, he was that kind of guy where Helen Hunt would be in her trailer and didn't want to be bothered. Yeah. And, and he was telling me of all, all the things that were going on with, with the movie that, you know, with all this debris flying around and, and it, it, that ended up being a problem, you know, because mm -hmm. people would get hurt from that. Yeah. So it was like, uh, uh, he was, uh, just really down to earth. And he says, you know, when this fame thing gets over with, my parents live in Fort Worth. So uh, let's just get together and go out storm chasing. And I said, absolutely. He says, uh, you just, you know, he says, this fame thing gets over with. Little did I realize he was going to, you know, Apollo 13 and and, uh, yeah. and Titanic and all this other stuff. And so he, he went on to bigger and better things. But um, so uh, that's that's kind of the, the, the twister before. And then the twister after was, I get a phone call from a lawyer out of St. Louis, Missouri, saying we're suing Warner Brothers. Uh, we believe that Michael Crichton uh, had stolen a script from us, uh, my uh, my script writer, and we want you to take a look at it. So I looked at it. It was interesting. Hmm. Uh, it turns out this guy wrote a script about tornadoes chasing, mm -hmm. and the script was 90 pages. Well, it turns out the script for Twister is 90 pages. And when you start flipping it over, the flow was the same, you know. You go to Aunt Meg's for for a dinner. Really? Right here it was at the restaurant, not her house, and it just things were just slightly different, slightly altered. Okay, but it looked pretty parallel to me, you know, uh, on these two. And of course, they're suing for millions and millions of dollars. So, the Warner Brothers has big, big lawyers. Okay, so they went and hired, uh, in a, you know, the best lawyers they could find, and so. They went to the judge. He tried to get it thrown out. The judge looked at it and goes, no, this, there's something here. There's something here. I'm going to let it go to the jury. Wow. All right. <laughs> Shock. You know, you normally don't that. do that. Yeah. So I had to go up to St. Louis and testify with Michael Crichton sitting there. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Anna Marie Martin and the Warner Brothers lawyers and get grilled by those guys while I was on the stand Jeez. testifying for the plaintiff. Uh, on the matter of oh. whether the scripts were, quote, substantially similar. Uh, and uh, that's, that's a legal phrase, but uh, 
I, I can say they're similar, but whether they were substantially similar, that's a really... That's tough. That's tough, okay? Yeah. So uh, it went to jury, and the jury could not find that it was substantially similar. They found it was similar, but they couldn't find it substantially similar in their eyes, and therefore uh, the case was basically did, zero. Did you get any other script reviews after that? Is that no, now a no, Hollywood fact, title No, I was told that my, my Steven Spielberg would never, ever call on me again. <laughs> So it's like my my days in Hollywood were over. So it's like, oh, well, that's the way it goes. So we're here with uh, Rick Smith, Warning (laughs) Coordination Meteorologist uh, at the National Weather Service in Norman, and uh, had a chance uh, to catch his uh, topic uh, today at the event as well. But uh, Jen, go ahead. So, Rick, first of all, you're just a legend in, in this industry. Well, what is it like when there's a big, severe weather threat? What is the feel in the office? What do you do differently? And, you know, what has changed actually over the past five to 10 years? It's a great question. Um, the severe weather event, the, the anticipation for that obviously seems to begin many days in advance now. That's one big change. Yeah. It's not just the day two outlook or the day three. It's the day eight mm-hmm. sometime or it's even beyond that. Social media speculation yeah. starts discussion. So one of the things is we're looking out further ahead. And one of the things that does is that just builds up. I mean, there's there's a lot that that's going on every day that you're you that you're going through to ramp up to the event is. I mean, you're living that event all the time. And, and, you know, me and the other forecasters in the office, if we know there's a big severe weather outbreak coming in four days from now, that's all you're thinking about. When you go to work, you're, that's all you're talking about. You're briefing the partners, you're talking to emergency managers, um, answering phone calls, doing social media. So you're living that event like 24 hours a day. So by the time the day gets there, the event, I call an anticipatory fatigue syndrome. It's like you're exhausted by the time the day of the severe weather gets there. But I mean, there's, it's a, it's a professional environment in the weather service. I mean, on the day of severe weather, we all have our job to do. We divide up the duties uh, based on someone's warning forecast or someone's doing communications. And it's a, it's a pretty well-oiled machine once the event gets going, but ramping up to the event, there's, there's, there can be just as much pressure and just as much stress leading up to that day as there is going through that day. Yeah, no, that's very true. And talking about damage surveys after the fact, after, you know, multiple tornadoes and multiple storms, how do you manage all of that along with your emotions after the event? Well, it's, it's tricky. I mean, uh, we all got into weather because we're interested in meteorology and geeky science. People like to look at computer screens. It's a whole different thing when you get in a vehicle and drive somewhere where a tornado has just happened mm-hmm. and when you're walking around muddy streets or walking around someone's yard with everything that was in their kitchen pantry, just scattered across the yard and yeah. stuffed animals, you know, so there was no training that prepared me for that. Um, so it's, it's, you just have to, you have to make sure that you're emotionally prepared for it. Not every forecaster is. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's just, um, we're out there doing a scientific mission. We're out there to gather scientific data. So some people are really good at detaching themselves and just saying, I'm just getting the data, but it's pretty hard to, because we're also interacting with survivors when we're out there and you're hearing their stories. They always love to tell their stories and you really want to listen. You can learn valuable lessons from it, but you're talking to people who probably are just going through the worst day of their lives and uh, trying to gather information about the storm. So it's, it, it does take some some work. The Weather Service is being much more 
proactive now. We've actually developed training mm -hmm. for our forecasters on how to manage stress in situations <sighs> like that, nice. how to prepare yourself mentally before you go do a survey, Yeah, um, getting them primed for some of the things they may encounter on a survey that could impact their mental health or things you may not expect. Um, so we're doing a better job with that. But yeah, it's it's part of the job. Not everybody is cut out to do it, but um, it's an important it's an important part. The severe weather event doesn't end when we issue the last warning. Yeah, it is. It continues for days, weeks, months after that. And the damage survey is a part of that. So I've got one last question. So on your your talk today, Rick, um, on post storm surveys, with it seemed like this past year a lot of um, uh, impatience with. Uh, getting results back from those and a lot of people because of that wanting to guess and throw out their own mm -hmm. estimations as to the strength of a tornado. I guess, what do you want people to know uh, if you could sum that up in that process? What's involved in that process that you want people to understand before they start making those guesses and getting frustrated? Right. The, the Weather Service has to go out and survey these tornadoes. We're responsible for rating them and documenting them. And it's hard work. It takes a lot of time. I mean, it can take four hours one way for us to even drive to a spot to start surveying damage sometimes. So it can take hours and hours and days in, in many cases. So be patient. Know that the Weather Service is working as hard as we can with our partners. We want to get it right. I mean, we don't want to guess. We don't want to speculate. We want, we're scientists and we want to look at the data and get the best data that we can. We want it to be right. So it's going to take some time. Sometimes it takes days, but, but no, we're working on it. And speculation or arguments about what EF scale rating it is, that's going to happen on social media. People have their opinions, but, but realize that there's a lot more that goes into it than just, oh, there's a slab that used to be a house. So that's an EF5. There's, there's a lot of forensic work, a lot of CSI type work that goes into those surveys. And the, the stronger the tornado is, often the more complicated. Thank you for listening to the Stormfront Freaks podcast. Find our bi-weekly show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast app. And watch our live and recorded shows on YouTube. For show notes, additional information about this episode, as well as past and upcoming shows, videos, photos, merchandise, and more, visit our website at stormfrontfreaks.com. While you are there, check out our live interactive storm chaser radar provided by our friends at zoomradar.com. If you would like to contact us with questions or make comments about the show, shoot us an email to questions at stormfrontfreaks.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Search Stormfront Freaks. We'd love to hear from you. Join us next time and tell a friend about the Stormfront Freaks podcast.